Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the four degrees to the streets podcast. I'm Jasmine. She's Nemo. We are here for season three, episode nine. Yeah. This episode yep. nine, mm-hmm. we are winding this down. This season has gone by extremely fast. Started with Nemo in LA. I was doing an in-person episode. We had a Black History Month segment where we featured Black-owned health and wellness brands. We are now entering the end of Women's History Month, which is March of the year 2023 we're reminded of our last season episode nine wow the same time um decision making in public space gender race and class in which we interviewed women um from different coastal cities on their experience navigating public space and we just wanted to highlight that and hope everyone has had a wonderful black history month and wonderful women's history month nemo how are you doing what's going on I'm doing well. Yeah, we've just like breezed through. I feel like every season gets quicker and faster and, you know, we just get better and greater. And I love that for us. Um, Q1 2023, everybody circle back on your goals and what you what you set out and intentions. I feel like I'm kind of doing that. Like, I feel like my Q1 reset is like more significant than my January. Like, it's like you have the first three months a little shaky. Like, what do you want to make of it? But no, I'm feeling good. It's getting warmer. Um, and so excited to spend spend some more time outside, which speaking of, we're going to hit another episode nine that we talked about. So now we're going to season one, episode nine. That was our climate change episode. Um, and so if you're listening to this episode now, I would say that is recommended listening. It'll give you a little bit more context about climate change as we're going to be talking about some environmental policies and planning procedures in this episode. Um, but really what we're going to be talking about today is our last episode, um, episode eight with Byron Nicholas um, from Black and Urban. We discussed the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, regional planning, and then we also looked at one of the new projects that came out of the bipartisan infrastructure law or bill, the Reed Connecting Communities Pilot. And so we wanted to um, come back and spend a little bit more time because truly we could have even done two episodes just when we were recording that last one. There was a lot of information. So we wanted to give a little bit more context um, and uh, discuss how MPOs and DOT funding um, work together a little bit broadly, like before Bill and what that looks like on a regular basis outside of this historic investment. Um, But we also wanted to look at how regional planning um, and federal transportation funds have had involvement in the environment, you know, TLDR, it wasn't always the case, but from decades and years of planning and understanding that you can't necessarily plan large transportation infrastructure projects without considerations on the environment that this connection and um, consultation came to be. So we'll talk a little bit more about that today. Um, And I'll turn over to Jasmine to share a little bit more about kind of that background I discussed. Yeah, 
Nemo didn't ask me how I was doing, so I'm just gonna let everybody know how I'm doing. My bad. <laughs> I was like ready to go. I was like, we're rolling, we're rolling. Um, yeah, speaking of Q2, I circled up on my goals and hitting all cylinders on fitness, hitting all cylinders on fashion. And it was a goal of me to keep my little house in order and keep it clean every single day. But the finance aspect of things needs a little bit of work. And so I will be recentering finance in Q2 and onward because we got to get our lives together. It's because everyone wants to be outside. This is like the year that everyone is reclaiming and wanting to be outside. So yet inflation is running rampant (laughs) and eating up all of the extra dollars that we had in our pockets. And if I hear another Government officials talk about that $1,400, please. That was four years ago. That $1,400 is gone. <laughs> and I, I know you, um, I think you probably told me about the Earn Your Leisure podcast, but they had a post on your salary and where it gets you, depending on what city you live. And I was like, I need to leave. <laughs> they might not be the place for me because <laughs> it's hard. No, I was in Texas and, you know, long conversation about Texas on the podcast in our cost of living episode. And I was in Texas. I was in the Austin area and I'm looking at the houses for sale, talking about low threes, three bedroom, two and a half bath. I'm like looking around LA, like, why am I here? What am I doing? Like, what are you doing here? And then you wake up and it's sunny and it's palm trees and you could go do yoga and eat the avocado toast. And you're like, what am I doing here? Why am I still paying this amount? <laughs> right that doesn't it doesn't really make it better like because if you live in a place where you don't have anything to do then you're not spending money you get to keep I feel like it's all connected it might all be connected so to bring it back to the bipartisan infrastructure law or the bill um, I'm just going to circle up on some highlights from last week's episode just to kind of refresh everyone's memory it's an infrastructure bill with over a trillion dollars um and a significant portion of it is allocated towards transportation so 283 billion of that um trillion dollars is allocated exclusively towards transportation which includes roads bridges and major projects passenger and freight rail public transit airports ports and waterways safety and research Reconnecting communities, electric vehicle charging, and low carbon and zero emission school buses and ferries. And so this episode, we're going to double down on the reconnecting communities as the awardees for that pilot program were announced on February 23rd of this year. And so we wanted to circle up and highlight some of those projects that we saw were interesting. Um, We also talked about regional planning in the previous episode. And regional planning, we defined it using the Plan Edison definition, saying that regional planning is a form of planning defined by geographic area, usually comprising a land area that encompasses multiple cities and counties, In the United States, regions can also cross state lines, in part because of that large geographic scope, regional planning can have many meanings and take many forms. We highlighted some examples of regional planning authorities um, or regional planning organizations and POs, including the North Jersey Transportation Planning Authority, um, the Southern California Association of Governments, or SCAG, um, and a variety of others across the country. And so the purpose of this, we also talked about the Reconnecting Communities Grant. And so 
The purpose of the Reconnecting Communities pilot program is to reconnect communities by removing, retrofitting, or mitigating transportation facilities such as highways or rail lines that create barriers to community connectivity, including mobility, access, or economic development. The program funds both planning and capital construction projects to address these infrastructure barriers and reconnect communities as well as improve people's lives. The title of our last episode was America Has a Infrastructure Project, uh, Infrastructure Problem, and we love Beyonce. Hope y'all are going on tour to see her real soon. Like you said, inflation, so I will not be present <laughs> at the tour. <laughs> um but yeah no thanks for um thanks for that recap uh jasmine so after now that we've looked at you know kind of revisited the impact that bill had specifically on transportation um and how mpos are involved um one thing when we before we get into some of the reconnecting community projects i feel like something that we didn't necessarily cover in the last episode simply because there was we would have been talking for two hours um but really breaking down why federal funding is important and how it's distributed um and how it's happened over time so we're going to kind of go a little bit into a little bit dive a little bit back into history and look at um something called federal transportation authorization um, which is how the federal government legally mandates and author uh, basically gives the funding, the distribution um, to both states, MPOs, cities, um, the varying levels of jurisdictions in the country um, and how they get access to use those funds and what they can use it for and how they can use it and how they can be approved and all of that. So I'll turn it back to Jasmine. So there's a variety of bills or authorizations that come out every couple of years, typically following within administration's goals or priorities that direct spending of DOTs, of transit authorities, of ports and waterways, of airport facilities. And we're gonna specifically talk about the ones that impact highways. And by highways, we mean roads, bridges, tunnels, actual highways, neighborhood streets, et cetera. And so, Every federal aid program or activity, including the federal aid highway program, requires a legal authority to operate, meaning that an entity, New York State DOT, has to have legal authority to operate these roads and bridges and tunnels across the state of New York. The authorization of, um, allows them to do these activities, but also provides funding for capital projects or for planning projects. And so we began having these United States in 1916, as early as 1916, with the Federal Aid Road Act, and then following up with the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1921. And the titles of these bills, similar to the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, or BIL bill, always have these acronyms that often give you a sense of what the bill is going to be about. And so we have Safety Lou, which is S-A-F-E-T-E-A-L-U. And that came out in 2005. And it stands for Safe, Accountable, Flexible, Efficient, Transportation Equity Act, a legacy for all users. And essentially this authorization came out with a lot of funding opportunities and regulations around what highway safety encompassed. And it gave state DOTs and regional planning authorities direction on how the federal government was going to support uh, local transportation spending. 
Then we have Matt Whenever Rice. Mm-hmm. Look at that acronym, the safety Lou. I'm always like, what's the T on safety? Like, it's just like, <laughs> even in 2005, T wasn't even a phrase that people use, but that's what, when I look at it now, I'm like, that is such an acronym. It's long too. It's unnecessarily long. We have MAP 21, which did not come out in 2021. It came out in 2012. This came out under the Obama administration and stands for moving ahead for progress in the 21st century. And so it's a designed measure to build up America's infrastructure. It was a, a progressive infrastructure, a smaller infrastructure bill. You kind of have to wonder the Obama-Biden administration and now Biden in his own term now, how infrastructure has consistently been playing a role in his um, experience at one of the highest levels of government we have in the United States. And then we have the FAST Act in 2005, which stands for Fixing America's Surface Transportation. Again, this is more of a bill designed to do more of those operational and uh, daily maintenance requirements of state DOTs. And then finally, we have what we're looking at now, the Infrastructure and Investment and Jobs Act of 2021, or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. And this is a long-term investment in our nation's infrastructure, different from the other two in that Safety Lou is about safety. MAP 21 is about um, innovative and green kind of transportation improvements. And then the FAST Act is strictly about repairs and maintenance, deferred maintenance. And now this larger bill is kind of pulling all those together and saying, look, we tried all these little piecemeal solutions. We're going to make one large bill, one $1.2 trillion bill to bring all these initiatives together. And we're going to have an inclusive and equitable and safe and green and efficient transportation network on the other side. Thanks for that, um, Jasmine. And we'll have in the show notes some comparison charts on how these um, acts differ and these authorizations differ. But yeah, like Jasmine said, it definitely reflects what the priority was at the time. Um, And, uh, you know, a lot of these were before my time in (laughs) planning or transportation. So, um, but I definitely have heard them referenced over the years and heard them compared um, in different transportation settings. And so Bill is no different. It's like the latest, hottest thing of like, how is this going to be used? How is it going to be different from the other ones? What do we know about the past ones and how can that impact, you know, whether that's for com- com- competing for competitive funds um, and things like that. I specifically wanted to highlight um, safety, Lou, as we think about environmental concerns and how MPOs are involved. Um, And so specifically that act in 2005, um, there was a section 6001 that required MPOs and DOTs, Department of Transportation and Metropolitan Planning Organizations to have discussions of potential environmental mitigation activities. Um, And with those discussions, they were supposed to include specific areas in their long-range plans um, and have consultation with federal, state, tribal, wildlife, land management, and regulatory agencies, essentially requiring them to talk to their sister agencies, talk to their partner agencies, talk to their neighboring jurisdictions to understand what the potential environmental risk could be, um, both in their long-range plans and also for any transportation projects as well. And that sounds like a pretty light ask. Like it's nothing super specific. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit later and how that ended up playing out in some of the findings of this report that, okay, now that this is built into one of the acts that jurisdictions use to receive federal funds, how what, how will this happen? How, how, like how, what will they do? Well, how will it work? Um, and something that made specifically looking at environmental risk and impacts 
um, something that brought it to the forefront was um, about 11 years earlier in 1994, um, Clinton signed an executive order that ensured that every federally funded project would have to consider the human environment when taking planning or decision-making processes. And so that led to environmental justice requirements throughout the federal government. Um, and we talk about that, and I mentioned earlier in um, season one, episode nine. The requirement for MPOs and DOTs to include a discussion is very broad, and you can see it in the different MPO planning documents. We talked a lot about what those planning documents were in previous episodes. When you open those documents, say by the New Jersey MPO or the Southern California MPO or the Bay Area MPO, when you read them, they all have like an environmental justice element and the scope and the depth in which they do this little discussion or analysis varies. I've seen MPOs simply just map what they consider EJ populations in their neighbor, in their uh, in their jurisdiction. So they'll make a map of what they consider environmental justice populations, which are, um, I'm going to mess them up, but generally it they are minorities, low-income persons, rural persons, and I believe persons with disabilities are also included, and elders might be included in that geographic, that demographic also. And they'll map where they are using census data, and they'll then they'll overlay where their planned capital projects are located to try to say, okay, look, we have a hundred capital improvement projects ranging from a small pedestrian crosswalk to a large highway or trail ex uh, rail expansion. And here's where those projects are happening in relation to our quote unquote vulnerable populations. We can say that we're making an equitable effort because 50% of our projects are in EJ neighborhoods and 50% are in non-EJ neighborhoods, just as an example. I've seen that done. I've also seen um, MPOs make a more concerted effort to locate their community engagement activities in environmental justice neighborhoods. And so they'll go to those areas mapped out and they'll make sure that they do engagement in those communities, maybe more so than they would do them, say, in the downtown area. Yeah, that's so true. And um, EPA has the EJ screen tool that does some of that mapping of those EJ, um, environmental justice um, and historically disadvantaged areas. And it's interesting when you think about tools and we've talked about, you know, different planning tools in different episodes, but tools are super helpful and they're beneficial, but then do they become like, I don't know if cop out is the word, but do they just become like placeholders? Like, well, we use this tool that was accessible and didn't require us to do any deep analysis. And so therefore we did our part. Um, and looking at the Southern California Association of Governments, one thing that I did appreciate about how they interpreted this requirement, um, they did look at the specific populations, but they went a little bit deeper um, in their not, and they did like a long-term analysis between 2012 and 2035. Um, that included both historical and projected populations, benefits and burdens, travel time, um, uh, accessibility for work and shopping to parks, gentrification and displacement, regional admissions, um, and both localized emissions and noise. Um, and so I feel like that gives a little bit more of a full picture of how physical environment can impact your daily life, rather than just looking at census data that was already there. And the scope at which the MPO does this analysis kind of lends to the impact of the plan, right? So if your plan is, if your EJ discussion is literally just a discussion, we we can 
reasonably assume that the impact of your plans and your projects and your programs are not going to be equitable because you didn't even do the work on the front end to assess what is currently the baseline standard. So that's a really good point, Nemo. Thanks for shouting that out. Yeah, and so this study, which is a little bit dated, um, that came out. So this uh, requirement started in 2005 and um, US DOT did an analysis of the findings um, and used several different jurisdictions and MPOs as case studies in 2009. Um, and overall, what they found was that because the new requirement was so broad to have these conversations on environmental mitigation, um, it did allow some space for jurisdictions to be creative. Um, it did start conversations and allow transportation agencies that maybe weren't collaborating with regulatory agencies or environment agencies to be at the room and have more coordination up front in the planning process, rather than when design and construction has already started and that then they're realizing these environmental concerns. So I do think that is a benefit. Um, it does seem very surface level. Um, and so I'll talk a little, in a second a little bit about what Bill is doing now to center the environment, um, bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, and overall, the some of the recommendations that came out was that they realized they needed to start at the planning phase earlier um, and have a specific emphasis on community engagement, um, which is a common recommendation. But sharing this, sharing this with you all, just for some background of what goes on in the rooms where it happens and when they make these requirements. And as we kind of add a little bit of a three-dimensionalness to this kind of very two-dimensional idea of what it means to have federal funds and how that impacts what you see on a day-to-day -day basis. And so with bi the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, it has been seen as having more focus on environment, but again, time will tell on how these funds will be used and what requirements will actually force jurisdictions to use the funds for climate-friendly projects, such as transit, active transportation, so biking and walking, um, or they could also use the funds to make highways wider and then therefore increase demand and have more single occupancy vehicles on the road contributing to air pollution. Um, so time will tell, but one thing that Bill did was it revised the National Highway Performance Program. Um, and so that makes up about half of the highway trust fund spending. And so that's one of the larger pots that jurisdictions can, um, that is authorized for jurisdictions to spend on highways. Um, and that specific program, they altered, they revised their mission. And so the mission is now to mitigate the cost of damages from sea level rise, extreme weather events, flooding, wildfire, or other natural disasters. And so that kind of subtly makes jurisdictions think about, okay, how can we use these funds to mitigate the environmental impacts of having all of these highways? Another thing that came out of Bill, and these are just a few, we'll have more in the show notes to um, for folks who want to read more in their own time, but just giving a quick overview. Um, something else that came out of Bill was the PROTECT program. Uh, caution, another long acronym. Uh, PROTECT stands for Promoting Resilient Operations for Transformative, Efficient, and Cost-Saving Transportation. And so states and MPOs can use this program um, and uh, tap into these funds to make infrastructure more climate resilient more resilient. So existing pieces of infrastructure, whether that's bridges or, you know, highways, roadways, whatever could potentially be damaged by storms or extreme weather events that we have seen as a result of climate change, they can use this to make their infrastructure stand up against those types of weather disasters. I think it's important to highlight how it centers the environment because it's not often that 
infrastructure projects consider we talked about this with with byron on the episode was like it's truly an equitable bill we will see through looking at the awardees how it's implemented but i think the purpose of the bill is really to consider people environment and infrastructure with the overlay of equity so i really i appreciate you highlighting the environmental pieces so I just want to provide some more background on the Reconnecting Communities pilot program because that's what we're going to spend the next portion of this episode discussing the awardees. And so ironically, I think the day the episode came out, the awardees were announced. And so we had to circle back and bring y'all this information. And so the U.S. And, DMT, mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say it now in the time we've taken to report this episode, like this follow-up episode. There's been a lot of conversation. There's been a lot of reports. There's been a lot of data that's been coming out about these awardees. And so I'm excited to to talk more about it. And, you know, we may even do another follow-up later because mm-hmm. stuff is happening every every day with these awards, it seems. There may be a bonus episode. We'll see. So the USDLT announced on February 28th that they awarded $185 million to 45 communities through the first round of funding for the Reconnecting Communities Pilot Grant Program. The awardees included six capital construction grants and 39 planning grants. And they have a map, which we'll include in our show notes, which shows where the projects are located geographically. And it's pretty wildly widely dispersed across the United States. You see a concentration in the Northeast, that being D.C., Philly, Jersey, New York. You see a concentration in the central part of the of the country where you see Chicago, Detroit, you see Columbus, um, Cleveland, you're seeing St. Louis. You see some concentration in the more more central midwestern parts of the states in Oklahoma, Kansas City, and the deep concentration in on the west coast, San Francisco, LA, Seattle, even some projects down in Florida. I will know, however, that the infrastructure projects were most commonly the capital capital construction projects were most commonly found on coastal cities. So we see Tampa, uh, New York and Jersey, Chicago, Detroit. Buffalo in LA. Those are all cities that are lined that are on the water. And what's important to note about those places that they're usually older cities with older infrastructure. And so kind of makes sense to see those projects there. Further background on this is that only 20% of the funds allocated towards the Reconnecting Community Pilots Program were awarded in this 2022 round of funding, which means there is still a huge pot of money available. So we will be seeing further uh, applications open. So if your community wasn't able to submit or your project wasn't selected, don't give up. Only 20% of that money was used. So they allocated um, $1 billion towards the Reconnected Communities Pilot Program and only $185 million of that was used this round. So we'll see a lot more opportunities for funding. Just looking broadly at the data, the raw data for where these applications came in, they received a total of 414 applications representing um, cities, counties, tribal governments, state governments, nonprofits, public housing authorities, 
uh, special government districts like a downtown improvement district or the waterworks district, and then also higher education facilities such as a public university. Also regional transportation providers such as like MTA. And then those represented the most came from cities, counties, and tribal governments, and then state governments, then nonprofits. And then it was a really big concentration of those special government districts around 16, 16 applications came from those areas. And we received, um, not we, but the USDOT received requests for $1.6 billion was requested between capital and um, planning grants. And so 1.4 billion was requested for capital construction funds, which on average people requested about $16.8 million. And the state that submitted the most applications was California with 49 different applications. Now California has a lot of cities, but that's a lot of applications. Don't you live there? <laughs> we do need help, but that's because the next state with the most was New York with only like 10. So oh. it's like, wow, California, you are doing a lot. They said we're getting it. Those yeah. who ask, ask and you shall receive. Closed mouths don't get fed. Don't get fed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for that breakdown. Because that's just information that, you know, context that could be helpful for people who are, who do work in jurisdictions or partners, like you said, nonprofits are also eligible. Um so it's not just, you know, city or local governments um, and kind of knowing what you're up against and who else is competing is is good to know and good to know who is interested in this specific project. Um, as Jasmine recapped in the beginning, um, to remove barriers that were created through the construction of highways um, and repair neighborhoods that were also impacted through those barriers. And so the uh split between capital projects that will actually receive construction funds to have shovels in the ground um, versus planning funds that will be used for, you know, assistance with getting to the design or construction phase. Um, so kind of the more beginning steps for projects. Um, and I think some projects may have asked for construction funds, but then received some planning funds too. Um, so what they asked for, what they got varies. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, they said, this is, this is what you get, make, make, do and manage. And we'll talk a little bit about that too, as we go through some of the highlights of the projects. But um, so New York state and Buffalo, they received the most funding on the capital side um, at 55.6 million. And so that project um, is route 33, also known as the Kensington expressway, that highway construction project um, split and displaced a significant amount of the Black population in Buffalo. And when that construction happened, it displaced the, the Black population to the east side of Buffalo. And that side of the city has less access to amenities. So in terms of jobs, grocery stores, banks, um, and even with the construction of the highway, it was in the 60s, sorry. <laughs> in the 60s, um, not much has been done to revitalize that neighborhood, even, in, even through, you know, with the 50, 60 years that have passed, um, it's still very much the same. And so what this construction, capital construction funds will do is put a 41,000, 44,000, a 4,000-foot cap over the expressway. Um, and that will hopefully reconnect the east and west roads that were severed, um, add green space and parks, include complete streets. So thinking about roadways to serve all users, 
Um, and so that's what some of the goals that they are planning to do for that project. Um, another capital fund, a capital project that received the, a bulk of the funding was Shoreline Drive Gateway in Long Beach, California, that received the $30 million. And so currently that project is a high-speed highway that divides neighborhoods again. So it divides the working class Magnolia neighborhood. Um, and the overall goal of that project is to move vehicle traffic with an emphasis on pollution, moving pollution away from the nearby schools that are in that area. Um, and when that project is completed, the, some of the benefits are reducing barriers to having community park space and removing some of the safety hazards on that existing um, on that existing high-speed highway. Nima, when you read the little blurb that was available, which we'll have in our show notes, did you feel convinced about either of these projects? Yeah, so it definitely requires some more investigation. Um, if when you look into it and some if you dig and if it's available, you can find the actual proposals that they submitted, um, which gives a little bit more context. I don't know if I found it for either of these, but I know Buffalo has been talked about a lot, so that one might be available. Um, but I think most of it is very, it's very high level. Um, it's hard to say what made one project more appealing to receive funding than another. Um, because there, if you look at their proposals, there are a lot, there are, you know, several criteria that, you know, the government had the, or the applicant had to um, show proof of and make a good case for. Um, and so, you know, looking at one's argument, could it really be different in terms of what's assessed? Um, one area could be stronger. So, you know, one jurisdiction, they have already done a lot of community engagement and planning, um, but another jurisdiction could have a, you know, significant need and they have the data that shows that. So it's like, how do you weigh one of those compared to the other in terms of what would have the most impact? I'll just note that the Buffalo project, they received 55 million for a total project cost in their quick little burb that was a um, billion dollars. So there should be, when we talked about it, some form of a state or local match, meaning that the federal government has contributed 55 million. The local government, whether that's the state or the Buffalo DOT and why, you know, the local DOT for Buffalo um, is also contributing another 55 million or 30 million, something towards the project. Because if the project is going to cost a billion, but you're only getting 55 million, you're not going to be able to get it done. And so I think it'll be a while before we start seeing shovels in the ground for these, but I mean, getting halfway there is much an accomplishment. I'm from Jersey, so I want to take a look at a Jersey project that was awarded a capital uh, funding grant, and I wanted to highlight this because I don't think it actually captures the spirit or the essence of the infrastructure bill. And let's get into why. So the New Jersey Transit Long Branch Station Pedestrian Tunnel was awarded $13.2 million for a project that they believe has a total project cost of $26 million, so roughly half. The New Jersey Transit Commuter Rail Station has North Brown and Southbound Transit Service at grade, meaning that the train station or the platform is at grade with the street level and the parking, as opposed to being underground like the subway or slightly raised above ground. This creates two problems. First, passengers of the train 
have a difficult time getting from one side of the platform to another. Meaning if you get on the train and you need to go northbound to New York, but they need to transfer to a train that's going eastbound, then you have to get off the platform, walk across the street cross the street, walk to the side of the train station, and then go up the stairs again or walk across the platform again. And so pedestrians and passengers that are trying to access either side of the station have to cross over active train tracks, which is not an ideal pedestrian environment. And so the futures have a pedestrian tunnel, which is an above ground facility, not an underground facility, that pedestrians and passengers alike can use to cross over the train tracks to access both either side of the platform and either sides of the train station. And so NJ Transit writes in their proposal to USDOT that the project will replace a portion of existing parking with a green station plaza that includes stairs and an ADA compliant ramp to provide access to all parts of the station. The pedestrian tunnel will improve local connectivity, address safety challenges and inequitable access to transit while making the station more resilient in the long term. The project will enhance bicycle pedestrian accommodations because we will install bike racks and a bus shelter uh, which will make transportation of other modes other than driving more accessible and is in line with the visions and priorities identified in the Long Branch Master Plan. Now my own personal opinion is that this doesn't seem to truly connect communities. I, I know this area I looked at it on a map and the train station is kind of in the middle of the city so it does separate the residential part of the city from the more uh, downtown urban core part of the city but this tunnel but there is already at grade crossings you can cross uh two streets on either side of the train um you just have to wait you know if there's a train coming the, the little arms come down and say you can't walk you can't drive but those areas do have sidewalks and you can walk it this to me is more of a station upgrade less than a reconnecting communities initiative. And when I went back to look at the description of the reconnecting communities pilot program, it is written broadly enough that with enough data, you can reasonably argue that this tunnel or this bridge over the train tracks from one platform to another will make it easier for pedestrian getting from one side of the city to the other to cross over. But at the end of the day, it is still on NJ Transit property and it is still a quasi-public bridge that does not mitigate the safety challenges around the station. And I think that there's better ways to improve the connectivity that the train station provides. For one instance, the train station is surrounded by parking. On both sides of the station, there is a huge parking lot. And then in the center of it is a discount store. It's super low density. If you improve the density immediately just to that station, you will thus create walkability. And so I just have thoughts and comments about this receiving $13 million because it doesn't seem to me to really capture the essence of reconnecting communities because it doesn't seem like the train station itself is a barrier it's just poorly designed yeah I definitely hear you on it seeming like a station upgrade that New Jersey Transit could have added into their capital plan their capital improvement plan um and I'm still on the so it's a it's not underground 
No, so it's called a tunnel, which is confusing, but no, it goes above the station. So it's not, they're not going to dig underneath the train. They're going to go above it. And the news articles that came out, the first article came out about this in 2021, where the mayor, the then mayor included this in his downtown redevelopment effort, which is the first time it came to the foresight. And now they put in, they must have wrote a plan, but it does to me feel like a station upgrade ultimately. Because that's a pedestrian bridge, which if it was titled that, then I automatically would have just not been interested. (laughs) There were a lot of pedestrian bridges. And to me, a pedestrian bridge is so anti-pedestrian. It's like, we know this street is so dangerous. We just gave up. I just go over it. Like, fuck it. Because the street is so bad. (laughs) Yeah, there that we never did make that Vegas real. But for anyone who's been just a headache. Mad pedestrian bridges in Vegas. Like, just make the streets safer. Like, why do I have to go above ground? In 120 degree heat and walk up some stairs. And if you miss your pedestrian bridge turn, you stuck. Just one last thing on the Vegas thing. It just gives you an aerial view of the massive roadways (laughs) as you crawl across it and realize that it was not for you when you don't have a car or you're not in a car and therefore you have to be inconvenienced and think about vegas like i feel like there's three places in the united states that are like very american i feel like and it's weird because okay so i'll let you know vegas atlantic city which are basically the same and new orleans so let's just take ac out vegas and new orleans are like american tourist destinations but think about how different they are like New Orleans is very walkable. Like whatever the the tourist part of New Orleans is like dense and walkable. You can enjoy all of it on foot. But then Vegas is like this terrible car enclave. And it's like, why do you have all these people drinking and gambling, but they can't walk anywhere? It's bad. So bad. And then there don't be no cabs. And then the Ubers are, that's a whole... And then it's 125 degrees. Like, okay, so we're going to need to have a follow-up episode on Vegas. American America cities. <laughs> so an, uh, one of the planning projects that got awarded that I wanted to touch on, um, and we did a little bit in the previous episode, but again, like I said, more data, more reports have come out, more reactions, um, is uh, reconnecting Claiborne and that was submitted by uh, Louisiana Department of Transportation in the city of New Orleans and they received half a million dollars five hundred thousand dollars um to be used for community engagement efforts in the Claiborne Innovation District that's kind of a one sentence summary of what they were allocated that five hundred thousand dollars to do and a little bit of context before getting into um, the project the Claiborne Innovation District was completed in 2017, 2018, and that was a 19 block transformation of space um, beneath the elevated portion of the I-10 expressway along Claiborne Avenue. Um, And so that included green infrastructure, um, improved um, cultural spaces for arts, crafts, produce, seafood vendors, Um, And it also had plans to include classrooms and exhibit space, technology, educational demonstrations, youth programming, health, social services, and all those things. Really an innovation district built with the residents and the community in mind, I would say. And so this project continues on from that 
so the overall plan that uh, Louisiana DOT submitted um, included improving the section for cultural amenities, um, bike and pedestrian safety, and doing enhanced lighting, and then also doing safety improvements on the overpass ramp, the on-ramp, and the off-ramp for safety and burial rem removal. And so that part about, and then also when they do that, they'll remove part of the infrastructure and then that land could then be available for affordable housing and then focusing on commercial real estate for local businesses was included in their proposal. And so to complete all the items that they requested above, the total cost was $95 million and they received, they requested $46 million and then they received the 500,000 for planning. So let me just run that back one more time. So the whole project, so to do the improvements, the on-ramp, the off-ramp, the bike pad safety, that total cost was 95 million. They requested 46 million for construction and they received 500,000 to do community engagement as it relates to planning for this project. And this is interesting because when the Biden administration was coming out with the Reconnecting Community Pilot, they use a Claiborne and I-10 as a textbook example of what it means to reconnect communities. And so some could say this is a slap in the face, but I don't know that, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just a third party sharing my personal opinion as I read the, as I read the, um, the, uh, the, you know, read the numbers and what, and what folks have said. Um, another organization, the Claiborne Avenue Alliance, they are nonprofit. They also submitted a proposal for the Reconnecting Community Pilot. Um, they did not receive any award funding in this round. Um, and their nonprofit, they are known and they have been calling for the removal of the expressway entirely for years. But their specific request was $2 million and it was to initiate a community-based design process to really seek community input on what the community wants to do with the space. Um, and one of the things that they stressed was gathering data on the environmental and the public health impacts of, um, of the expressway and the impact that it's had on the community for as long as it's, as long as the highway's been there. Um, and they've been able to utilize a lot of the existing resources in the community. So looking at Louisiana State University School of Public Health um, and Tulane University, they've worked with the nonprofit to be able to categorize some of those disparities. And so specifically students from LSU monitored and prioritized the environmental risk, and they were able to identify the significantly higher rates of disease, um, evaluating the impact of what the proposed solutions would be, some of the past solutions that have come out of livable Claiborne communities, um, and then also looking at air quality and noise data, and that those who have significantly high exposures of toxins and noise are within 600 feet of the highway. Um, and that the total removal of the expressway is the only way to really eliminate the exposure and the threats that the highway has brought on. Um, and so do you see here two proposals, one that got, a, you know, you know, a chunk of planning funds and one that didn't get awards at all, but that have slightly different approaches and ideas of what they want to do with that space. So I think it will be interesting in the years to come to see how these groups either collaborate or what happens with the community engagement efforts that Louisiana DOT and City of New Orleans were funded with and what the nonprofit continues to do as they have said that they are going to continue to push and fight um, and, you know, seek funding opportunities to have that community-based design process and really pursue what it would look like to remove the expressway. Now, I'm wondering, just playing devil's advocate here, 
how much of the USDOT's decision-making was because there were two applications for the same facility with different priorities. And if their decision to say, okay, look, you, Louisiana DOT, here's $500,000. Y'all need to go back, circle up with your neighborhood, figure out what you want, because we were just received a really in-depth application from a nonprofit that seems to be active in your, in your community with a different, maybe not a full 180, but a different approach to how we should address this facility. And so I'm just wondering, as I'm listening to your narrative on it, how that played a role in it. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, yeah, no, I I fully agree. I wonder how they look next to each other. Um, but again, you know, as you know, someone who um, you know may not live in these spaces and may not know the players, as you think about the funding awardees at a high level, you wouldn't even know that there was multiple applications. You wouldn't know who and from where and what applied. Um, but we will have it in our show notes. I do think the the level of work that went into both proposals. Um, was really interesting and thorough. Um, and um, as I just mentioned with the rates of the public health impacts on the community, this is like a serious, this is like an emergency. This like can't wait, whatever does happen, whatever is going to take place to hopefully re reconnect this community and mitigate some of those um, impacts that are harming the people who live there. So another one that was funded that we're not going to get into, uh, which is a planning program, uh, was planning the stitch, reconnecting a torn urban fabric. And this was uh, in Atlanta. And the stitch, for those who may not know, is a highway capping project for the downtown connector, which is in uh, downtown Atlanta. And that covers, say, about five or so miles, probably about three or four um on and off ramps and spaghettis crossings. And the stitch has been a very well discussed topic in Atlanta planning circles because the highway, similar to most others, contributes all this pollution and traffic. But the difference is it's in a downtown environment. It's not in a necessarily truly residential environment. And so I think that's why it hasn't gotten as much draw and attraction because it seems like something that quote-unquote downtown business interest want rather than a neighborhood and so the link to the stitch atl will be in our show notes and you can peruse their website and their frequently asked questions and see what that initiative is about but they received 1.1 million dollars in planning and so from their website they are in the true planning stage um they intend to kind of start the construction in 2024. So they want to be in planning 22 to 23, engineering and design 24 to 26, and then construction 26 to 32. And so we'll see what happens with their planning efforts for this project. Yeah. So we really just touched on a handful of the awardees. How many were there? There were 39 planning awardees and six capital construction awardees. Yeah, so even just you could see in the few that we've just talked about, there's a lot to be said about each project, what went into it, the background, we could talk about the demographic, we could talk about the data, we could talk about the history. Um, and so um, I think this pilot is really interesting and in starting a lot of conversations for how we think about um, federal funding and like Jasmine said, the equity overlay on um, on federal funding and the priorities of an administration. Uh, one thing to note, the Inflation Reduction Act did establish another program that can be used for similar efforts, the Neighborhood Access and Equity Grant Program. 
And there's supposed to be more announcements coming on that later this spring. So who knows, even by the time we drop this episode, there might be more on that too. Um, but overall, I think wanting to come back to this topic from our last episode um, and really just give more examples to how this is happening in real time, how regional governments, um, how regional planning um, organizations and local governments are working together um, really in, in the in the room where it happens, in their offices, on the ground with communities um, to change how what we see when we walk out and go you know, see our streets on a day-to-day basis. And so um, this topic is always very interesting to me just as a, as a city, as a current city dweller, <laughs> um, as I think about what makes me feel safe when I'm a pedestrian, when I'm a driver, when I'm taking public transit, um, and what overall as a nation we're prioritizing for people who are using different forms of transportation. So that's kind of my, my two cents takeaway Um, I'll turn it to Jasmine to see if she has anything else before we close out. I just want to highlight a ugly elephant that could potentially be in the room. Politics is real. And I'm not, I'm not um, making an assumption that there was any sort of coercion or handholding, but we do live in America and uh, things happen. And so you have all these towns and cities and states submitting to USDOT a request for funding. And each of these cities and towns and streets sit in someone's congressional district, in someone's House Representatives district, and things people talk. And so you don't know how much of that is influenced, which projects were or were not selected. And I think as we navigate planning, Byron alluded to this in our episode around he didn't realize how much politics played into the role of being a planner, especially when you work in government planning. There is a sense of there's a finite number of resources. Every city needs a billion dollars to do a billion different things. And even within cities, we might need a billion for water. And that's in competition with a billion for the bridge. And that's competition with a billion for new books for the kids. And so whenever money is involved, it's very important as we know this podcast is designed for tools and for education to be mindful of the politic or the political nature of the world that you live in. Um, And when dollars are being distributed, you have to acknowledge that there's politics and and, uh, deals and all those things that could potentially be happening. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. As we are like sitting here trying to do like one plus one is two, what happened <laughs> in the room? Um, yeah, that's real. I think um, we talked about maybe doing an episode next season on like um, political leaders and planning, um, you know, we're Black women. So we're likely going to highlight Black women who have been, um, who are elected officials. Um and so I think that that will be an interesting theme um, as we think about next season, too, and how it relates to as we've spent three seasons talking about the process, the tools and the planning, um, thinking about the politics that happens, which is definitely hand in hand with it. Um, so thank you for joining today. Um, we have one more episode left this season. Um, we hope you will join us. We drop episodes every other Tuesday when we're in season. Um, and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the number four degrees pod. Peace out, y'all.